This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with ABC radio host and former Triple R broadcaster Jacinta Parsons. Jacinta joined me for an in-depth discussion about her new book, A Question of Age, Women, Aging and the Forever Self. Jacinta asks, how do we adjust our perceptions of getting older? What does it mean to age as a woman? And what is our currency now? And it's also really, really lovely to have on the show someone who I love and I know so many people at Triple R and beyond love, and that is Jacinta Parsons. Jacinta is no stranger to Triple R. She was a breakfaster and she also hosted a range of other shows, some music shows as well at Triple R during her time. She's still broadcasting in radio. Now she's over at ABC Melbourne hosting the afternoons program. And Jacinta is a speaker and an author as well, having written two fabulous books. Her first book was Unseen, The Secret Life of Chronic Illness. And her second book, the book that we'll be discussing today, which is just being released, is called A Question of Age, Women, Aging and the Forever Self. And I've got to say it's a big honour to have you on the show, Jacinta. Thank you so much for joining us today. Look right back at you, Amy Mullins. This is almost (laughs) a bucket list for me because, yeah, no, truly, um, you are so highly regarded in the way that you do your work. So I was so excited when I got a tap and I was told that I would be coming on for a bit of Amy Mullins time. (laughs) Well, I'm very, very honoured and I know that your work has meant a lot, especially I'm talking about your first book to the chronic illness community as just one example of the impact you've been having with the writing that you've been doing. So it's really, really great to see that you're covering another big topic with this book, women and ageing. And it's not as you kind of have put in the the promotional materials, it's not a self-help book. Uh, It's not something that you would typically associate when you think of a book about women and ageing, which is great for all the women out there who don't necessarily want to embrace every imperfection at times because it can be quite a distressing or depressing thing to do but you go through and deal with and grapple with all of these issues. Before I jump into that, I did want to say that um, I didn't realise you were a Cats fan until I just read your piece. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to give anyone special treatment, but I was really impressed that there's another Cats fan out there and that you managed to turn your daughter away from Hawthorne. You've really got my respect. So, Oh, that was one of my greatest achievements of my life. You know, yeah. when they reflect on me and when I'm past, I hope that that is one of the things that they say is a great achievement. Getting one of your kids to barrack for your team when your partner is um, feverishly trying to do the opposite is very good. And, you know, love the Cats. I'm so excited. Yes about what we've got coming up over the next hopeful couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited but nervous, so nervous. Like I don't know if it's the same for you, but watching the football, anyone around me will just be like, (gasps) because I'm, you know, yelling and jumping up and down (laughs) and banging my chair and (laughs) freaking out the dog. Why do we do this to ourselves? I know. It's so painful. You know, it is such a painful thing to be a football supporter. Yeah, I did actually ask myself that. I, th- I thought the game against Collingwood, oh. I, th- I think that did take years off my life, <laughs> really. Like when I reflect, 
I luckily have, um, I've got Cameron Ling who joins me on my show um, on the ABC and he was obviously part of our triumphant period of mm. premierships, but he was also part of those games years before that 2007 first grand final that caused me so much grief that I would yeah. wake up in the morning sometimes and wish that it hadn't happened. And I was like, that is just <laughs> way too much vibe on a game of sport. But yeah. yeah, so yeah, we've got a lot of therapy um, to sort of get through with some of the past we've also had. Totally. Well, and it's especially affects the whole town of Geelong and the broader Bellarine and Cirque Coast. You know, if Geelong are winning, everything's great. And if they lose, like there's a lot of sad facts. So, uh-huh. yeah. But I was actually reflecting on age with Geelong because we often talk about Geelong being the oldest team. And, you know, this does tie back into your book, although we're talking about male age here and footballers age, but Joel Selwood is my age. You can go Google if you want, if you really want to find out how old I am. We talk about Joel Selwood and Patrick Dangerfield as being old in footballer terms. You know, hearing that on TV, even now in my 30s, I have had these moments that you bring up in the book about, am I old? Uh, You know, I thought I was still in my 20s. You know, like, have I shifted into a new realm and I didn't realise I had? And this is one of the key elements of your book. So I wondered, have you had those moments, you know, perhaps earlier, not in midlife where, you know, you're talking about at the moment in this book, but even in, you know, your early 30s where you were starting to question and there were moments where you were wondering, have I shifted into a new realm Yes, there was. There's definitely. I think you go through those little um, peaks and troughs of thinking, "Oh, far out! What I used to belong to actually don't naturally belong to anymore." And I think people will really um, sympathise or have shared experience around some gigs you go to, and you know, if you have to line up firstly, that is a moment where you check yourself and think, "I don't think I'm a liner upperer anymore. <laughs> I think I've passed that phase." And then, secondly, it, depending on the music you sort of look around you and think, I could possibly be a parent of these children that are also going to see the same music. Just that awareness that it's not your crew anymore necessarily. Mm. Whilst you're still, you know, a part of it, I think there's those moments where you feel like we go in packs and the packs that we usually roll around in have a heap to do with the age that we are. Yeah, and you bring into the book in latter chapters the generational gaps as well, these definitions of Gen Z, Millennial, Gen X, uh, boomers, and the way that we've kind of disparagingly calling boomers boomers now with that hashtag OK Boomer, (laughs) (laughs) which my parents aren't happy about, and people saying, you know, boomer humour. Like there's a whole range of ways, I guess, that we group ourselves into certain categories and you know, what used to be young, a millennial being someone who was seen as young is now not. Like it's a little bit confronting for I people. Know. When you're the young generation and that everyone's looking at you for that youth insight and then suddenly there's a whole generation that's grown up without you noticing and they're now the kids on the street that are telling the millennials uh, to pull their heads in, which mm. is... You know, it's just a really interesting, it's an interesting dynamic that we set up around how we think about ourselves in terms of generation and ages and almost roles that we play, I suppose. Of course, there's cultural influences and there's ways that we've um, experienced the world that are similar because of the time we entered the world. But, you know, I think it's it's a fascinating 
insight into how much we restrict ourselves and think of ourselves as being part of, you know, an idea. Yeah, it can be confronting. And I think even reading your book, thankfully, you guide me through in a very gentle way. It's not often that you want to reflect on your age or how you might be changing, especially if you're not in your 20s anymore. Although you, everyone, you know, still thinks they're in their 20s, or at least <laughs> I certainly th- think I'm 21 and I truly believe it. But you do open the book by saying that this book will not ask you to love your lines or to post on social media that you feel privileged to age. Of course, this is all true and it is truly a privilege to age. But this book primarily endeavours to understand our rage. Why, as women get older, do some of us seem to get really effing mad? And clearly there's this gender dimension here, which has been very obvious for many years, women growing older and suddenly becoming invisible. And also the intersectional disadvantages for some women as well. You know, we look at class and uh, ethnicity and ability. There are so many intersections that also kind of compound the way that women experience ageing. So I wanted to ask, and it is probably the most obvious question any interviewer will ask, but why did you pick this as the topic to tackle next? Because, you know, perhaps writing this book, one would think it could either be confronting and or therapeutic to do. Yeah, it began kind of more innocently, actually. You know, it began, one of the stories in the book is how I was at a bar and I met a woman and we were having this wonderful conversation with each other. You know, those times where you meet people and you're like, we are so kin, we yep. get each other. You know, I'll tell you all my kind of deep stuff. And then um, at one point in the conversation, she turned to me and she said, oh, my gosh, I really wish you were my mum. <laughs> and um, I was so shocked that she thought I could possibly be her mum. And then you look at the maths and you're like, actually, it's absolutely possible that mm. I could be. But just the external and the internal not matching, not what I think I am and what I'm seen to be was that moment of shuddering realisation. It began sort of in that superficial realm a little bit, and I suppose it's superficial in some regards that we think of ourselves in our external. But then um, I was, you know, I wrote an article about it. I was approached to write a book about it. And I sort of thought we'd sit in that realm. But the, the further I got into it, the more I thought about it, there is such an important consideration to be made around the gendered aspect of ageing. And rage was a really key kind of driving inquiry for me because I think women have um, this offhanded thing where we'll say, yeah, and I'm really bloody mad, you know, Mm. about not about ageing but just as I'm ageing I'm becoming angrier. And we can often put that off to hormonal changes. But I think there's really substantial things that we need to reckon with around how we've been told we should be ageing, what we are as old women before we can actually move into the expectation that we need to love it. I think it's an absolute truth that we can love it. Of course we can. But I don't think we should be expecting anyone to do that until we've really reckoned with what we have um, made us feel about it. There are so many cultural and social dimensions to ageing, especially in Australian society and Western society more broadly. And, you know, you bring in all of these issues. There are so many 
beautiful ways that you tackle these topics and you bring in issues of you know sexual harassment the early years in a young girl's life when one is catcalled at there's street abuse or harassment and it's a really poignant point that you make about how women and young girls experience that because you know you talk about your experiences saying I had that moment of expecting that I should be looked at or, you know, jeered at or commented upon by, you know, the construction workers at the building site. And then one day, you know, you and your group of friends weren't and you wondered what you'd done wrong. Like one of your friends, I think, said, should we go home and get changed? Like what <laughs> what did we do? And it's a very, you know, significant moment, it seems, because that's a weird response. Like it's it's a natural response, but it's also like, why would I want to play into this this power dynamic. Yeah. That's the incongruity of it all, I think, in some ways. So we're built in this world that, um, and the statistics and, and the research shows that from around the age of 11, uh, girls are whistled out on the street to denote their sexual, um, them being now sexually interesting. And so we have to start computing what that means in the world and what it means for us as young women going through those experiences of, of objectification, which is fairly widely experienced. Um, I think there's really high percentages of women that would describe the objectification that they experienced on the streets in Australia. Um, and so when that happens and we start to see ourselves from the outside in, so even though... Um, especially growing up when I did, there was a really strong feminist narrative around, oh, how disgraceful. We're not dogs. You know, we're not to be regarded that way. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a deep truth and, and belief in that and an absolute agreement to that term. But what we're not acknowledging is that all of the ways that we are treated and affirmed in the world or noticed or not even affirmed but given acknowledgement of our existence is through this objectification. And so you begin to have this duality of experience with it where, of course, you reject it, but at the same time it validates your ex your existence. So it's not really until the, the, the whistles on the street stop or the jeering or the insults or whatever we get as bodies that move through the world that you recognise the impact that that's had on our, on our psychology. Um, and I think... I think thinking about that is is a really crucial part in how we then begin to understand that the invisibility and how we begin to age as women then becomes both an opportunity but a real challenge around understanding who were we anyway in this space. It's something I know that when I was in my 20s, it wasn't that long ago, but you would have these moments of okay, well, it's nice that someone recognises, you know, my appearance because, um, you know, you might find it to be quite complimentary, but then you often feel that that can be the only thing that someone would notice. And then, you know, you don't feel like you're a whole person. You feel like you're more this kind of object or body without the brain that's inhabiting it. And that's another theme that comes up in this book is, you know, how connected are we to our bodies and, you know, how much is our outside reflective of our inside and it was a very interesting thing to think about for me and I'm sure for many other women out there who would have similar experiences where they feel very conflicted because 
you know, they want to be seen for the human being they are and not just as a sexualized object. But there's also this other element that you bring into this discussion about self-objectification and the issues around that. And I wondered, could you tease out self-objectification for us? Because it has become more and more topical, I would say, at least in the last 10 years, especially with pop culture and music culture. And you draw that out in this book. Yeah, I think what's really fascinating about how this all plays out and and then in the reference and the frame that we're looking through which is aging is that we're taught to look at ourselves from the outside in so you get taught to see yourself as you assume others see you so rather than from internal out and how it feels to be you you make some assumptions around what it looks like to be you and the way that we then barrage ourselves with you know derogatory thinking about who we are. It's not everybody that does that, but often it will be part of the way that we're taught to think is that we're not good enough or that we don't look right. And we have affirmed in that thinking constantly, we are constantly shown imagery around what it looks like to be a woman, a woman of age, a young woman, um, a woman of colour, a woman who is disabled, all the intersections that we can describe. We are given feedback on that constantly. And unless we are immensely alert to that, that becomes internalised as misogyny is, as racism is, as homophobia is internalised as well. When you are so in receipt of um, impressions of what you should be thinking of yourself. It is very, very hard to separate and to understand that the internal out is the way that we need to go. And it's sometimes not until this ageing process that that confrontation becomes really quite large, to think of ourselves from the outside in and to be told that what we look like is not what people want anymore. Absolutely. And This is probably a great time to bring in one of the key themes of your previous book, which is chronic illness, because this also has a lot of intersection with ageing. And as you say, people with chronic illness already feel really old. You know, even if they're in their 20s, their muscles are groaning, their bones are crunching, you know, they're in pain. They sometimes, you know, struggle to get out of bed, just as you describe your experience of having Crohn's disease. And it's something that also comes up for women of an older age who also have chronic illnesses. I know some of um, the people I've been speaking to have said, you know, when they talk about their issues, their chronic illness is seen as, oh, well, that's just part of ageing. And there's this odd blurring of the boundaries, you know, when you switch from being a young person with chronic illness to being an older person with chronic illness. And I wondered if you could reflect on your experience of chronic illness and how that has played into your perceptions of yourself and your ageing, because you bring in these ideas around the things that you missed out on, the, the issues that I think a lot of women, especially those who get autoimmune illnesses in their 20s and 30s might grapple with. Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating intersection and it's been a fascinating intersection when we're looking at, you know, pandemics and how we respond as a community to that sort of stuff. What I think is really illuminating with ageing is how the expectation that our body is sort of a static entity, you know, we know it consciously that it's not. We know that it will change, that it will go through illness, that it will have breakage, that it will be bothersome in, in inverted commas. But it's really not until you're confronted with the limitations 
that the body um, can present for your life, that you grapple with the depth of what that really is. Aging brings that on absolutely, as does illness. So we have expectations of who we are and often we take a real kind of um, expectation that our body will constantly provide that experience. But when your body ages or it is unwell, your body really dictates in some ways the way you can interface with the world, mainly because the world is not set up to ensure that the interfacing is equitable. It's really made for able bodies and for young bodies. And so what ageing and illness both do is force a confrontation with that changed self. And so there is an enormous amount of requirement to go from outside to back into the inside and wonder far out if I have lost my identity with this body, the body that has enabled X, Y, and Z, who am I in this? And that can be a really, really uh, difficult thing with with illness. I definitely went through a majority of this kind of exploration through illness, wondering if I'm not who I am with my body, who am I? And, of course, that brings this wonderful emancipation from it, but it's certainly not done without a tremendous amount of pain, I think. And I think ageing doesn't have to be that, but it can be that kind of painful exploration into feeling like your life has changed as a result of a changed biology. What does that mean? Yeah, and how do you deal with that moving forward, given that chronic illnesses are chronic? You know, it's not something that necessarily recedes, although some people might be fortunate enough that at some point it does. But yeah, it's a constant in one's life if that's your situation. And you bring in during the discussions around illness, your experience of motherhood and pregnancy, which is also part of a, an essay that I read in a great book uh, about parents with disabilities just recently. And that was also very illuminating. But I wanted to ask about this idea of women's biology and their function certainly the way that society at least has placed this emphasis on the woman as mother, as someone who has the potential for fertility, the potential to give birth, and then suddenly they don't. You know, they're entering perimenopause and menopause. This is also another area that you explore in the book is these stages around the reproductive function of women, but not all women want to embrace or can embrace. And it's certainly something that you yourself say you weren't sure of whether you would be able to do as well. So could you take us through your thinking around this way that society is constructing the role of mother and also the role of women as reproductive objects or vessels? Yeah, I think it's really, again, a really fundamental thing to understanding age. We're not separate from these ideas that have been constructed around us of what we're worth. So this idea that menopause is connected with that as well, Mm. that once you lose your biological ability to birth, then you go through your menopause phase. And what we have seen kind of across the popular culture, across media, across the way it's described, even the way women describe it themselves, is that menopausal stage is embarrassing and shameful and we're hysterical and we lose our agency in the world because that reflects directly back to 
what we see the woman's role as. And obviously that's gone through tremendous change over the decades, but fundamentally not. There's a biological imperative there. And, of course, we're talking about women who can birth um, biologically. Not all women can. But this idea that the expectation is to fulfil our destiny almost, it is about that. We can see that in every interaction that women have in the world, probably with family, with friends, with the way it's displayed, again, through the media, is that the expectation that women will want to um, use their bodies for that purpose is so injected into our consciousness that if they don't want to, there Mm. is this tremendous requirement to explain why. Like that is an unusual thing for a woman to not want to do. And again, really illuminates who are we in the world? We are these objects that produce life and therefore we are very valuable for that. But either side of those that, that function as mother, whether we're the, the young girl that's a slut or we're the crone on the other side, we lose that value very, very quickly. Indeed. I'm speaking with broadcaster and author Jacinta Parsons, and we're talking about her new book, A Question of Age, Women, Aging and the Forever Self. Now, Jacinta, I was struck by one of the, well, there are many great conversations and you've referenced uh, one of them earlier about maybe potentially being a younger person's mother in age, but there was another one that was also quite striking when you were recounting a time where you were saying you were writing this book about aging and someone was like, well, what would you know about aging? <laughs> I <laughs> and, get it all yeah. the time, which yeah. I understand. You yeah, because We have it, really strong ideas about what it looks like or, you know, who can talk about it. Obviously, it is a sliding scale. As we've said, there are phases of life and different moments that mark those times, some of them being biological, others cultural or social and political, obviously. But you do grapple with and tackle this idea of midlife and what that might mean and also the term or idea of a midlife crisis. And uh, it seems like... The 30s might actually be an apt time because you say that uh, from the HILDA survey, which is based out of the University of Melbourne, perhaps we do start feeling less satisfied about our lives in our 30s and the data being more clear that by our 40s and 50s we're feeling quite dissatisfied. And I'm sure this is a generalisation, but the trend shows that. But I was wondering, because we're talking about ageing, You talk about the fact there are these young people and then there are the older people, you know, the octogenarians, as you say, who wear the funky hairstyles, the great glasses, and they're kind of doing whatever they like because they don't care what anyone thinks anymore. And then there's this kind of middle point that we're sitting in here talking about midlife. And I wondered if you could share with us how you've conceptualised midlife through the research, but also through your own experience and why we're talking about this particular kind of span of years. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, reflection on how we travel through life. You know, this idea also that we're separate beings is one of the things that was really clear to me um, as being something we really need to push back against. But midlife as it's constructed, and again, Western context, and let's say even Australian context, Mm. is that we go to this space where all the striving that perhaps we did as young people, all the hopeful navigation, all the I hope one day, dot, 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 or maybe if I, you know, has come to some kind of point of reckoning. The middle bit is where you feel like, all right, 
so that's it. This is where I've arrived. Perhaps you've got kids, perhaps you've got aging parents, perhaps you have reached a point in your career that feels like it's clarity now as to where you are in the world. And that for a lot of people is like, oh, I actually thought it was supposed to feel really good. Mm-hmm. But actually, it doesn't necessarily. There is no point, uh, and I talk about that in the book, where someone knocks on the door and says, guess what? You have done it. Well done. Congratulations. You've arrived at the place you wanted to get to. And so I think there's an expanse of time where it feels like that really, that lost space where the direction that we once had when we were young is lost. We realise that there's less time ahead uh, sorry, there's more. There's less time ahead than there is now behind us and we're heading toward a different idea of ourselves, something where we'll maybe think about an ending rather than the beginning. And I think that's a really important thing to reference in terms of how we've structured these ideas of ourselves. There's a midpoint and that midpoint seems to always lack the vitality of the youth and the wisdom that we're supposed to get when we're older to kind of understand what we've done with that middle. It's true. It's that confrontation of I had this idea of what my life would look like and it doesn't fit that exact plan I had that I'd imagined and dreamt about and thought about endlessly in my 20s. Suddenly it doesn't look exactly how I thought it would look and how much time do I have to turn the ship around so to speak, (laughs) if you can at all. And that segues into some of the other issues you raise about women getting older and finding it harder to get jobs, to be paid well or even equally, to be treated well or even recognised, as we've already discussed, you know, older women kind of becoming invisible in the workplace but also socially. And then you also bring in an oldness that intersects with poverty, with disability, with being of a different ethnic background. And so you say that it's in these intersections where oldness can become dangerous, especially for women. So when there's that societal bias facing you down the line, you know, when you're thinking about, well, this is still there, it hasn't changed and it doesn't seem like it's going to move, it feels quite stubborn, I think a lot of people might feel overwhelmed about that and you know you quote those statistics about women and homelessness and that the women most at risk at the moment of homelessness are are in their you know 40s like mid 40s it is quite confronting I would say wouldn't it be for for women looking towards that time and that is the um that is the whole reason I think that there is rage This isn't a fictionalised or kind of vanity project of ageing. You know, this is actually um, the experience that we have when we realise there is danger in this for parts of our community, you know, real danger. If you've been a carer in your home, which is a gendered experience still, we're still seeing the largest percentage of the population as being women who are the carers. You haven't accrued the superannuation. You weren't necessarily part of the ownership of property. Um, you may have a future of looking after parents. You know, this is this is not some cute conversation around, oh, it doesn't feel so good. The mm. rage is actually about, you know, the sense that there is true um, dangerous inequity and we are experiencing it as as older women and we are being treated as such. And so pulling that apart and exposing 
the connectivity to all the things that we know are happening, but really landing it in that older age, I think is really, really important that we know that the outcome of all the inequity and caring is a real problem for women. This is really dangerous. The incarceration of our First Nations women, you know, all the things that are happening in terms of health outcomes for First Nations older women. These are the real issues that make us bloody mad. Yeah, the rage is palpable, as we saw, and you'd certainly reference in the book, these protests that we had, the movements, when we were dealing with all of those revelations coming out of Parliament House, that was a flashpoint, certainly, and highlighted the level of rage that's been there for a very long time. It's not kind of a new thing, but the way that it was expressed in such a cohesive way that women kind of gathered together, whether it be in person or online, to express their absolute disgust and rage, it did feel like a kind of watershed moment at the time. And you almost thought, well, this is it. Like, this has got to be a turning point, some kind of moment that will see a shift, a change for the better. Looking back on that now, it does make you wonder, have we missed that opportunity for momentum? It's not women's fault that we have it, that we might have, but it does seem that for women, especially in the cause of advancing women's rights and and pushing up against gender bias and the intersections that exist in that, it feels that it is often one step forward, two steps back. And you talk about, you know, the new kinds of feminism of Gen Z and the way that it might be different from old feminisms. And I wonder, could you just bring that into the conversation for us? Yeah, I was really fascinated the kind of personal exploration this was for me because I have a kid who is in the Gen Z world. She's 18. And just these ideas, this all coalesces as well in the sense that there is a real, um, that rage that we felt, that sense of repetition throughout the generations that we're dealing with the same stuff. What occurred to me was there is always this sense of leadership with age. You know, you lead the way, you teach, you show. What occurred to me is what we're possibly needing to do more so is get behind our younger women who are moving through the world right now and navigating potentially a new space. I think seeing it through a different paradigm as a collective I think is a really important thing maybe in terms of the shift of this. We've seen incredible leadership from younger women showing us, actually, you know what you put up with forever? That's actually not normal. It's not okay. And having that reframed from a different set of eyes I think is this enormous opportunity. I think sometimes what we feel when we've gone through the iterations of feminism is such a clarity of purpose and also you see younger people coming through and expressing it differently and seemingly sometimes what feels like um, an inaccuracy or a, a misstep. But I think that's the problem. I think we really need a bit of humility when it comes to these conversations. We see a very different brand of it through Gen Z, but we're a real foundation in what it's always been about. There's a toughness to the way that they will approach it. There is an impol- impoliteness There's a cancel culture that I know is really um, difficult as a navigation for them in terms of what does it actually mean to participate here. And so I just think in terms of how we um, generate the shift that we're desperate for, this has to be cross-generational. And I think it's about elders coming in behind the younger women to really listen, learn and support. 
Yeah, that's one of the key lines I underlined actually was essentially becoming an elder and not just getting older, I realised was going to be about this transition to listener. There was more for the world to gain if I became someone who learnt rather than someone who taught. It's such a great point for so many different things. You know, even when you're studying, you know, in an area, it's better to listen than to think you know everything because you don't. You're never going to know everything. It's such a patriarchal model to be a teller rather than Mm. a listener. There's such an expectation. And and that's where I think we can shift that dynamic. There is no loss of strength in humility. In fact, it's the opposite. Of course, we know that. But enacting that really is the challenge right now when we're hearing challenging stuff from younger women. And we're seeing it with the division of our feminism into um, aspects that are very, very uncomfortable where we're looking at exclusionary kind of concepts. You know, that sort of stuff is, I think, where we lose our humility. One of the ways that you finish out this book is reflecting on and contemplating what we've really essentially been talking about, this interior life versus the exterior, how we grapple with that and how our bodies are changing, uh, also how our perceptions of ourselves in society, in our friendship groups are changing. And you talk about the forever self, which you say is our perfect state in our elemental form, our quintessence. I wonder if you could talk about the forever self, especially in the way that you have experienced it and thought about it, because it reminded me of one of those experiments or, you know, things that you did when you decided you wouldn't look at yourself in the mirror for, I think it was seven days and you decided, I'm not going to focus on my exterior. I'm going to focus on my internal self and how I feel about myself. And I wondered, did that help you in your understanding of the forever self, trying to make sense of the difference of those two selves and and how they actually operate? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think it seems a superficial, you know, thing in some ways that we're really thinking about this external self as as equating to identity. But it really has been enforced throughout our whole lives. And I think what has been beautiful to hear from people, and it's always a softness when you talk to people in this way around how old do you feel inside? So Amy's 21, you know, and it's so fascinating that we are told we're something else. But really this idea that we exist inside ourselves as as an absolute elemental truth, that the five-year-old, the 15-year-old, the 30-year-old, however many selves there have been that have evolved and shifted and changed, they are still us, this continuum of experience of life. So the old woman is the young girl, you know, and is the woman that existed potentially outside of this lifetime. The continuation of us, the foreverness of us, I think, is this beautiful thing to reflect and reframe ageing, that we aren't to be told what it is, that we really need to connect with that that whole experience of self to really have a deeper understanding about what it means for us individually to be an older human in the world. And for me, it has been a beautiful, it's such a gentle way to think, you know, and to exist in the world, not in these interpretations of self from the outside, but in connecting with the self that existed throughout this whole lifetime on my inside. And it's really interesting because our internal is often expressed or we try and express it in some ways through the external in the way that we might fashion ourselves or do our hair or the things we choose to wear. But 
in that sense, it seems more like a self-expression and not necessarily about, you know, projecting this sense of youth. Yes, and I think Mm. individual choice around how we wish to project is so important to celebrate and support. However women choose to do this has to be great and we've got to be really comfortable with the various expressions of ageing. It can be natural and inverted commas. It can be unnatural and inverted commas, whatever that means. What we need to be focusing on, though, is how does this celebrate self? How does this actualise me? You know, how does this really express me in a way that is truly healthy? And, of course, we can't separate ourselves from this enormous systemic misogyny, I suppose, and ageism that we are deeply embedded in. And that needs compassion as well. We need to have compassion for how we choose around this, depending on how we have been taught to think about ourselves. Just closing out the discussion, Jacinta, when we're thinking about gender, obviously ageism, you know, exists across genders. Certainly within the workforce, it's commented upon across genders. But I was thinking about, you know, the men in our lives and, you know, whether they be friends or family or partners. These are people who are part of this system with us. It's a system that's been constructed across decades, if not centuries, this kind of capitalist system that's built into patriarchy, misogyny, as you say, and sexism. How do we bring men along into this conversation as well, especially about women's experiences of their selves and of ageing. Are there things that you've learned within your own relationships with men about ageing and is there any kind of message that you have around that? I think it's exactly right. I think what we need to do as humans is listen to the experience that has been um, had as as a result of systems. So rather than it being divided into um, gendered responsibility, it's a total responsibility. We all embed in our bodies the impacts of the patriarchy and neoliberalism and all the things that have been an accepted way of being for such a long time. And so as an individual, how do you account for it? How do you challenge in yourself the way that you know you have embedded these kind of concepts of the world and of women around you or of men around you? Absolutely, there is a male experience um, or an experience of being a man in this world of ageing. It's very different, I think, in some ways to the gendered experience of women because of the system. Mm. And I think we're empowered by thinking about it that way, that it isn't the fault in adverted commas of anyone, but it's the responsibility of everyone to challenge and think in every facet of our world how we are advantaged, disadvantaged by systems and what we do as a result of that in our responsibility of our humanity. Yeah, so beautiful and such a great way to end the conversation, Jacinta. <laughs> well done. Uh, you are a true professional and it's really, really lovely to chat with you about this book because it's very thought-provoking. We've had some lovely messages come through saying that um, those listening have been really thoroughly enjoying hearing from you as well. So I hope they managed to pick up your book, which is called A Question of Age, Women, Ageing and the Forever Self, which has been released through ABC Books, an imprint of HarperCollins Australia. And also I do highly recommend uh, your first book as well, Jacinta Unseen, The Secret Life of Chronic Illness. Yeah, big congratulations to you on this amazing work you've been doing. And thank you so much for coming onto the show to delve into these issues and share so generously your own experience. 
as I said, it is such a thrill to have such a thoughtful and wonderful interview on these ideas from you. I knew it was going to happen and I'm just so, so grateful for, you know, what you do on radio as we all are. So thank you so much. I feel um, very, very lucky. Uh, for joining you today. Oh, you're too lovely, Jacinta. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope we get to catch up again sometime. And uh, Yes, go the cats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Jacinta. I've just been speaking with broadcaster and author Jacinta Parsons. She was a breakfaster in a past life, a triple R presenter, and now presents the ABC Melbourne Afternoons program on 774. And the book we've just been discussing is A Question of Age, Women, Ageing and the Forever Self. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.